You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. The biggest hotspots of the early coronavirus outbreak happened to be in relatively wealthy, developed countries, places in East Asia, Europe, and North America. But now, as the virus progresses and spreads around the world, it's inevitably going to start hitting, in larger numbers, less wealthy countries. And the question is, what happens in places where social distancing is, for reasons of how society is set up, much less likely to succeed? That's what we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Morning. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, it is week, is this week four of doing Worldly from our home studios? Week five? I, time Nine, has no meaning. 98. Definitely week 98. We have always been under the blanket. So this is this is like the mental space that we are in this morning before we delve into what is even by worldly standards a particularly depressing topic, the developing world and its looming coronavirus catastrophe. Uh, we're going to talk we're going to focus on two broad regions today. We're going to talk about sub-Saharan Africa, mostly in the first half and in the second half we're going to talk about Latin America. And obviously there's significant amounts of variation inside these regions, but there are also certain shared commonalities both between the regions and inside of the countries in them that create similar problems for a variety of different nations stemming from the coronavirus outbreak. So, Alex, this is something, a theme you've been working on in your work recently, specifically uh, comparisons between developing countries on both continents. Why don't we start by talking in broad scope how to think about differences between the way that lower-income countries and the first-world countries that have had the brunt of the outbreak so far will experience this outbreak? Yeah, so the methods that have now become you know ubiquitous and familiar to all of us which is the countries that have effectively, you know, locked down their borders or shut borders early on during the crisis and then imposed pretty strict social distancing measures. Those are the countries that have so far done pretty well in the sense of they've kept the number of cases and specifically deaths down. And we again, we've seen this in, in sort of North America, in Europe and in parts of Asia. And the reason that seems to be working quite well is because a lot of people in those regions have the money to stay at home. It is unnecessary for many people to leave their homes or to at least not abide pretty strictly with these social distancing measures 
And this compounds a lot with strong governments that have an ability to kind of tell the people, hey, do X, Y, Z, and people follow along. As you see where I'm going with this is that a lot of places, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and South America, that option of social distancing is really not an option. And we know this because we're all, we've already seen a lot of these countries pretty early on, actually, shut down borders and, and try to impose social distancing measures because they had the advantage, quote unquote, of seeing the devastation elsewhere and thinking, OK, well, let's follow the playbook as early as we can and then we'll stop the crisis. And to be fair, numbers are currently low. That is probably also due to a dearth of testing. And so more tests would probably reveal bigger outbreaks. But the bigger issue here, and again, the biggest commonality is, especially in regions that are particularly poor, it is near impossible for people to socially distance, in part because they may live in highly packed areas and slums or many families living in, in one household. Or, it, you know, many people don't have enough money to buy large quantities of food and or store them where they live. And so you have to go outside in order to get food. And then the last thing is that access to water is neither free for many people or uh, available. Uh, and so the ability to wash your hands for 20 seconds is near impossible. And so there's now a worry that as the coronavirus starts to sweep into these regions, that the playbook we've seen so far is just not going to really work. The initial kind of conception when I chatted with you about doing this was like, okay, what's going on in, in these areas, right? Because it seems like big parts of the world haven't really gotten hit hard yet. In South America in particular, a lot of the governments in the region acted really quickly when, you know, in some cases, I think, like, within weeks after getting their first test case, I think there was one or two that maybe even were considering lockdowns or at least shutting their borders to travel before they had even gotten cases. And so my thought looking at this was like, okay, well, they acted really quickly, which is really good. Like, that helps explain why these numbers are so low. When we've looked at other cases on the show in Europe and, you know, in the U.S. and in Asia, the kind of standard thing that we found that was like the best thing to do, right? The best way to keep this virus in check was to act quickly. But in Sub-Saharan Africa and in South America, they acted quickly. A lot of countries did. And it looks like it worked. But when you started looking into this, you were like, yeah, but that's not going to last. That's not enough. So I, I want to drill down on the question of uh, what's going on right now in parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, because I think there are some really interesting reasons both for optimism and, and pretty severe pessimism about how they'll handle the coronavirus outbreak. And I want to list one on each side uh, and sort of toss them out there to see what you all think about them and how our listeners should understand the problems here. So I think I, I, starting with the, the reasons for optimism, I think, is that you've got countries in various different parts of sub-Saharan Africa that have more experience with the burden of disease and infectious disease than you do get endemically in developed countries. So for, for instance, you've had recent Ebola outbreaks uh, in parts of West Africa and a worrying one right now recurring in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And so some of these countries have well-developed, not just response playbooks, but like policy apparatuses and international cooperation mechanisms that can handle these kind of disease outbreaks and know to take them seriously in a way that you've got uh, some politicians in other parts of the world, most notably President Trump, uh, some of the Swedish authorities, and Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, which we'll probably talk about more in the second half, 
uh, who don't take this uh, nearly so seriously. That that's not going to be. It doesn't seem like in at least in parts of Africa that have dealt with these kinds of outbreaks before, you're not going to get that same kind of denialism. And in fact, we'll have a relatively effective policy and political response to the problem. Now, the second part, the reason that that I'm so worried when we were thinking about this, and there are these images I can't shake. These are from Kenya now of people standing in the street crowding together to get food rations because they're concerned about shortages and they need to get their food and they're worried it'll run out. And so they they just crowd together so they can get to the front of the line and try to get it. And I totally understand that impulse. In a place where food insecurity is a real problem, right? I don't know how you stop people from doing things like that, no matter how seriously the government takes it. I don't know how you stop people from crowding together in grocery stores when they don't have refrigerators. Right? It just seems that the infrastructural capacities of these countries, at least the ones that we've looked at so far on sub-Saharan Africa, makes it difficult even for very serious and committed political leaderships to keep distancing intact. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's completely right. Um, I'll just kind of address each. So, you know, it is, of course, not a good thing that many parts of Africa suffer from Ebola or other uh, diseases. But if there is a sort of silver lining, it is that a lot of these officials have learned kind of how to deal with a major, major health crisis. So, for example, in a lot of ports, airports, you know, seaports, wherever it may be, there were already checkpoints for Ebola. Now, with the help of the WHO and others, they effectively turned those checkpoints into Ebola and coronavirus checkpoints. And so the infrastructure was kind of already in place. And by checkpoints, I mean, we're literally talking with like, sorry just to cut in, but we're literally talking about like public health officials standing there with thermometers, scanners, who scan people for a fever and actually have infrastructure in place to, if you have a fever, take you aside and put you over here and get you into quarantine and deal with it. Yeah, that's what, that's one of the best practices that we saw in places like China, where they did it at, at the front of buildings, right? Like when you went inside, there was a fever check to make sure you couldn't right. spread it. And so now it, it, there's this thing that we haven't implemented in the United States, for example, is something that these countries in sub-Saharan Africa have already figured out is necessary to, to contain the spread of the virus. In fact, also some of the methods that uh, I, I talked to the WHO regional office in, in Africa, uh, and one of the things that told me I thought was most interesting and, and, and quite uh, fascinating is they there's a playbook they basically have had in, in, in place since the 1988, and what it is is basically having almost like community volunteers that are trusted by health authorities effectively say like, oh, that person's sick, this household's sick. Uh, and they mention it to local authorities, it works its way up, and then people in hazmat suits and, and equipment show up and go like, hi, you're sick, we heard you're sick, and then they'll do the test. And then even before the result comes back, they'll start contact tracing with everyone that person's been in touch with. So these kinds of things are already in place in a lot of these countries. It's quite amazing to see. They know what to do, but to the other thing you mentioned, Zach, is there's sort of larger structural issues that are making even these great moves already kind of moot in a certain sense. And I don't want to denigrate it. I'm just saying that there's there's some things that are just overwhelming capacities. Some people are so poor that they buy like literally just one meal day of and eat that meal because they can't store it. Supermarkets are overly expensive and too bulky anyway for a lot of folks. And so this is why people continue to go outside. And, and I've heard from experts what, they're, what people's basic calculation is well, the, you know, the chance of getting the coronavirus is potential, right? There's a chance, but it's not guaranteed. If they don't go out and get food, the chance of starving is guaranteed. So it's a risk calculation where going outside is, in some people's minds, the best thing to do. Um, I want to 
address the water issue too, which I think, um, you know, I was just about to mention that Jen, it's really important. I don't think maybe a lot of people realize how big a deal this is. And to say that water isn't free, like water isn't free here either. Like I have to pay a water bill, but it's really cheap and I'm very, very lucky and, and blessed and able to pay my water bill. But a lot of people can't. And especially in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, like access to, you know, and again, I don't want to be super generalized. Like there are major cities in sub-Saharan Africa that are very developed, but we're talking kind of broadly here. And in a lot of places, people have to literally walk to wells and walk to facilities to get water and bring it back home. And for those of you who have been in lockdown and who have been dealing with the coronavirus for the last several weeks, you're probably well aware of how much you have to wash your hands for this thing. I know my hands are like bloody and chapped and I wear, you know, I put lotion on every time and it doesn't matter because by the time I've finished putting lotion on, I already have to wash my hands again. Um, Oh yeah. Daily, I look like I get in a fist fight. Like the number one thing that public health officials are saying for this, besides social distancing, even before we did that, remember it was just like, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Well, if you have a limited quantity of water in your house and you have to stop and like send one of your family members to go get more water for the day, or if their water is being rationed, the ability to just like constantly wash your hands. Oh, I touched my face. Got to wash my hands. Oh, I touched the doorknob. Got to wash my hands. Like that's not something you can easily do, which means like that one really basic thing, like let alone like, do I have Lysol wipes to wipe down the you know door handle or whatever? Like the, the single most basic thing is, is really difficult in a lot of places. Just to add as well that, of course, a lot of water sources that some people do have access to aren't clean in and of themselves. Um, so, you know, the ability just to get clean, potable water to drink and wash your hands is, is, is quite tough. Uh, and I should also add just on the food and water bit, I mean, the coronavirus is also impacting just the way uh, sort of the food supply chain. I mean, a bunch of farmers, of course, or, or pastoralists are having trouble. Uh, if they get sick, they can't really tend to their crops. Um, there's also a massive locust infestation that's about to get way worse. That's also decimating crops and soil and droughts. But either way, a lot of farmers are kind of deciding, okay, well, do I risk bringing my produce to market because I could get sick as well? And just even on, on before that side, a lot of farmers require equipment from elsewhere, like let's say buying chemical fertilizer in order to grow food in dry soil. That's not really happening now because the global trade is completely disrupted. And so from like end to end, not only the ability to get food to market, but also that that's already in trouble. So there's a hunger issue there. And then of course, people staying home that are trying to stay home as much as they can without eating, that's causing hunger issues too. And so this is why you have officials including at the UN very recently, saying there might be like a hunger pandemic of epic biblical proportions on the way. I mean, one of the the things that everyone that talked to me about Sub-Saharan Africa and uh, South America as well is like the coronavirus is a public health crisis, first and foremost. It will also be, and for some people, it will be in equal measure, a hunger crisis. Yeah, I think that's really important to emphasize, right? This is, you, you can look just at the demographic profile of Sub-Saharan Africa, and uh, I believe it's, uh, by age, the youngest continent on the planet, right? It has the lowest average age. Yeah, only um, I should say only 2% uh, are above the age of 65, and that actually gives some people some optimism that there might not be as many deaths just from the age complication. Right, but the, the problem with that kind of blind optimism is it ignores the knock-on effects, Alex, that you were just talking about. 
you know, everyone is familiar with the fact that social distancing has massive economic costs at this point. Nobody is is confused about that. I think what is distinctive about the developing world is that those impacts are much more widespread in their effect on the fundamentals of like human existence, things like access to food and water at all. That when you have weaker infrastructure and you have less money just as a society, it is much more difficult for you to be able to have a government step in and address you know, people not being able to afford food. You have uh, supply chains that are vulnerable in a way that they are not in the United States or Western Europe or East Asia. It's, it's just a, a profoundly different structural reality, which means that you get this risk of mass hunger that you wouldn't have in countries where governments can step in and just make sure that everybody stocks their refrigerators. And I don't want to don't want to make it seem like there aren't political problems as well in parts of sub-Saharan Africa that are contributing to this. There's, you know, in, in places that have been plagued by weak governments, uh, like the DRC, which I mentioned a little bit ago, you don't have widespread surveillance and government control to impose the kinds of best practices that you're seeing in other places. And then you also get some places that are truly redolent of the, of the worst leadership in the West, like in Tanzania, where the leader of the country said that you should take communion because that will kill the coronavirus. It cannot survive in a world where you're uh, doing regular Christian religious observance. And like obviously that's not true, and in fact is counterproductive because then you get a bunch of people crowding into churches, which as we know is a gr- is was actually responsible for a significant amount, one church, of South Korea's initial outbreak. Yeah, in France too. Uh, Alex, I think you wrote about this. There was worldwide drawing, you know, people from around the world, this religious kind of annual uh, celebration in one part of France that they didn't cancel even into February when they already knew that there was, the virus was spreading uh, and ended up spreading the virus, not only just around France and causing a major outbreak, but to like something like a dozen other countries, including countries in Africa. Exactly. That was the initial vector, right? In in sub-Saharan Africa, if I understand it, a lot of it was tourism from Europe or visitors from Europe, maybe on business. Yeah, a lot of it came from Europe. Um, the first case, which was uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, which was seen in Nigeria, was from a, a, a man who came from Milan and roamed around for 48 hours before they figured out he was carrying the symptom. Uh, just to, to the points you were making as well, I mean, a lot of governments in the region are relatively weak. They don't have much money. They don't have a real ability to get public health information out or effectively to force people to stay home. Of the few countries that can do this, you know, you think uh, Rwanda, you think maybe Nigeria, you think South Africa. South Africa, in fact, is about to send thousands, about 70,000 or so troops out into the streets in order to basically impose this quarantine. This causes causes issues. Uh, I mean, uh, and look, a lot of the policies that have been put in place as well, like curfews, for example, are all well-intentioned because, of course, you want to keep people home. But there have been some issues there. For example, look, if you're someone who wants to go out and get water or wants to go to a medical center for treatment, there are a lot of distances to cover. And it's sometimes impossible to kind of make the decision, all right, I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to go to a hospital, get treated and come back. You might not be able to make it before the curfew ends. And this is causing some issues as well for people who still go into work. Though I should mention that uh, roughly about 90% of sub-Saharan Africa's economy is in the informal sector. These are people that aren't working for actual companies that have tax ties or whatever. These are artists and street vendors and whatever it may be. And then the other issue is that we are seeing in, in some some countries uh, where police are gunning down folks for not abiding by the curfew. I mean, it's led to violence and death in some places. If I recall Kenya, there was a moment where deaths from police shootings 
trying to enforce curfews had caused more official deaths than the coronavirus. Uh, And again, I want to be very clear, testing is nowhere near ubiquitous on on the continent, and many people believe that there are currently about more than 20,000 cases officially confirmed, but people believe it's way more than that. But all this to say is that even some of the best intention policies are sometimes not working in this part of the world. And 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 again, I, I struggle to fault individuals because, you know, their livelihoods are at stake and and being told to stay home keeps money away so you can't buy food. It also keeps food physically out of reach and curfews keep medical centers and even potable water out of reach. And so this is a very tough situation that may that it seems to be working pretty well in, in richer countries, but not really well in less developed countries. So, so we're going to take a quick break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the situation in South and Central America and how that compares to what's going on in Sub-Saharan Africa. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the potential for a massive coronavirus outbreak hitting sub-Saharan Africa, and maybe already has, depending on what the numbers are. We just don't really know, as it turns out. Now we're going to shift focus westward and talk about the Americas, most notably South and Central America, which is um, in some ways similar and in some ways different, right? So to, to name one obvious difference, you have, in general, much wealthier countries, in South America than you do in Sub-Saharan Africa. The continent-wide GDP per capita is considerably larger. And as a result, you have, in general, governments that have more capacity to deal with the situation. However, you also have some countries that that aren't, that are in very similar situations to many of the um, most at-risk countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And you also have some uh, political wildcards, particularly in South America, that have made the situation worse than it would need to be in an ordinary world. I'm just going to throw this out to, to the two of you, actually. What do you think the key points of similarity and dissimilarity are between these two regions, broadly speaking, in the coronavirus outbreak? So uh, the, there are a lot of similarities here. The first is poverty and inequality. In, in the region writ large, this causes a lot of people to, again, not be able to, to get food. I mean, we're seeing reports of like mothers of larger families literally saying, I have to choose between following public health guidelines or feeding my children. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the situation that they're in. Um, you have a lot of people who don't have access to health care. You have pretty pretty strong governments, but you also have, especially now in, in South America, especially weak economies that are deeply indebted. And so their ability to spend on public programs to get people you know, back on their feet in this moment is pretty limited. And then the other issue, similar to Sub-Saharan Africa, is that people are also dealing with a lot of concurrent diseases, um, whether it be dengue, yellow fever, that can complicate and overwhelm healthcare systems. I mean, these, and when I say overwhelm, I mean a lot of these healthcare systems are already pretty bad from a lot of public health sector budget cuts, but also less development. And so you're going to have a lot of people with different maladies along with the coronavirus needing care. And this is exacerbated for some people because 
the Southern Hemisphere is now leaving their summer and headed into winter, and that leads to flu season and a bunch of other sort of um, situations. So uh, what you're, you're effectively seeing is kind of like from the top all the way down, there are just major issues that, again, this sort of like usual playbook that we've seen um, in more developed countries is just not really going to hold over time. In terms of the response to the virus, it, it's kind of the same situation, which is why we, you know, we wanted to talk about these areas together, even though, you know, there's obvious differences. Because of just the distance, first of all, Latin America, South America is pretty far from Wuhan, China, just in general. And so the ability of the virus to spread immediately to South America, it, it took a while, right, compared to Hong Kong or Singapore or Taiwan, right? There's also, you know, a ton of travel between China and Europe, China and the United States, not so much China and South America, and especially, uh, you know, some of the countries, yes, there's, you know, big tourism, but um, a lot of the countries in South America just don't have a ton of international travel to the degree that you would see in something like Western Europe. And so they had time, right? Countries had time to kind of see what was going on, to see what other governments were doing, see what was going well, what was going badly, and to take action. And, you know, Alex, what I thought was really remarkable in um, in your piece on this was talking about just how quickly some of the countries uh, in South America actually acted. Venezuela was probably the most remarkable. Venezuela, listeners to the show may remember, is already suffering from a horrific humanitarian crisis. But they enacted a full lockdown four days after the first case was confirmed, which is like, that's remarkable. Um, In your piece, Alex, you explained that like Spain had its first case at the end of January and didn't impose a lockdown until March 15th. So a lot of these countries acted really, really quickly and were like, nope, we're done, locked down. And that's really good. Like, that's really, again, going back to the point I made at the top of the show, that's the kind of action we need to see, right? Like, that's the good policy response. But again, we end up with the systematic kind of systemic problems that make those lockdowns untenable for long periods of time and for big swaths of the population. And so that's where we're starting to see the breakdown. Again, for people who, you know, can't store food, can't, you know, buy food in bulk. That's the kind of kind of broader systemic problems that are making social distancing hard. Uh, I want to talk about Venezuela in more depth, actually, because I think it's a really important case. Uh, yeah. Continent-wide in South America. I think for two reasons. First, um, while certainly being fast to impose lockdowns is impressive, it's worth noting that this government is uh, not exactly altruistic in the way that it thinks about these things in a lot of ways, right? Like the Maduro government has been facing instability for quite some time, an economic crisis entirely of its own making that it's currently experiencing, not to blame the Venezuelan people at all, to blame the government specifically. And so you have a state that is already suffering from significant shortages of basic goods. And now when we're having shortages in advanced wealthy democracies, right, in a country like Venezuela that's on the verge, you know, of, basic fundamental failure, and then to impose a lockdown and and in th- what in theory is supposed to be a widespread testing regimen, if you look at the official numbers, Venezuela is actually higher per capita than the United States in terms of the amount of tests that it's, it's administered. The question, though, as often comes up in authoritarian governments, we've talked about this before on the show during this outbreak, is to what extent one can trust the numbers. And there have been a lot of reports from reporters inside Venezuela that, or those who have sources inside the government and and, and society, saying that the government is administering um, not particularly effective tests, that these lockdowns aren't having the intended effect, the coronavirus outbreak is worse than the Maduro government is letting it on to be. And, and moreover, 
the economic policy in that country and the generalized social collapse has led to a, a massive refugee crisis. Not just in obviously not just internally displaced people in Venezuela, but people trying to leave the country and so spilling over around the region and uh, refugee camps and displaced persons camps are ideal vectors for the coronavirus to spread because distancing is quite literally impossible under those circumstances. In fact, there's just some governments that are worried that even if they they don't go to refugee camps, just some people leaving Venezuela who may be asymptomatic going to other countries could, you know, infect others. Um, I think the testing point is important to point out. I, I talked to the WHO's office uh, of Latin America on, on Tuesday, and their basic point was like, look, there's just not enough widespread testing here. They're about to put out millions and millions and millions of more tests out in, into the region in, in hopes of, of getting a better picture. But the the belief is that, uh, especially including to one uh, humanitarian worker's view, that this, there's going to be a major outbreak and a major collapse of almost the entire public sector system of, of taking care for folks. Venezuela is a part of the story. Um, again, as, as migrants kind of move around searching to get out of a bad humanitarian situation and also trying to find a, a country with, with more resources to take care of them. But the, but the problems remain in, in, the, in the ways that we're sort of seeing elsewhere. And it's, I think it's an important thing to mention that even though the, a lot of South American countries made big external moves, right, shutting borders, et cetera, the internal policies are the ones that are letting them down. Um, in Peru, for example, which was one of the, again, the fastest ones to kind of shut borders very quickly, one expert I spoke to was an American, like the announcement was made and he had 24 hours to leave um, and he kind of struggled to get out. Either way, people are still going out in the streets, still going out in the markets. And that's because curfews have been in place, but no one's really enforcing them, and it's not really a full lockdown. And so, fine, lives have been saved by keeping potential carriers out, but the internal policies by some of these governments are still leading to, to bigger outbreaks. There's another issue, um, going back to the economy, that I think is really important to understand right now. Um, and that's the fact that several governments, um, in particular Brazil and Venezuela, their economies rely pretty heavily on oil. And you may have noticed in the news uh, this past week or so that the price of oil has just plummeted through the floor and was actually trading in negative territory in terms of oil futures and contracts. You know, talking about the ability of governments to respond um, and to borrow, right? Like, so in the United States, we're seeing billions of dollars of, of relief measures and packages coming from Congress. I think they just had the second or third one, these billions of dollars going to small businesses, providing loans and providing like the paycheck protection program to make sure that people can still collect their paychecks, even though their businesses are closed down and their jobs are, for all intents and purposes, gone right now. All these big stimulus packages, right? If, if countries want to do something like that, want to borrow, first of all, they're already, many of them are already heavily in debt. So, you know, Alex, you make this point really well in your piece that, you know, they would essentially have to put their countries in even worse economic shape for the long-term future to have to kind of borrow and go into even more debt. But on top of that, with oil prices plummeting, the revenue from selling oil is gone. And so the ability to even respond if these governments wanted to, right? We're not even talking about the governments, which we'll get to in a second. I really want to talk about Brazil, the governments who are like purposely just not responding and just like, eh, we're fine. But even the governments that are trying to take this seriously and respond, like they're hamstrung by the fact that they're already in debt, oil prices are plummeting, and they're already in a situation where th there's no access to capital. And at the same time, you know, countries around the world, particularly the U.S., but also China, countries that tend to provide relief when there's like a local disaster, 
you know, the U.S. tends to be one that, you know, sends Navy ships and hospital ships to help. We're dealing with our own crisis. So those governments are not as uh, open with their pocketbooks and their resources right now. So it's kind of just a perfect storm of bad. Yeah, I just want to put one quick fine point on this, which is you may be asking if you're listening to this, but wait, isn't the U.S. deeply in debt? Yeah, it is. In fact, it's debt to GDP ratio is in some sometimes worse than some South American countries. The issue is that people still believe that the U.S. is a good investment versus, you know, Bolivia or Peru or whatever it may be. So that's why they struggle to borrow. Um, there's a reason why almost the first policy action, or at least first request from governments, whether it be Sub-Saharan Africa or in South America, is asking for debt relief. They're, they're basically saying, hey, governments, can we push off these payments or better yet, cancel the debt altogether? Um, there are some wealthier countries that are pushing for that. France is one of them. The G20 has, um, you know, the 20 wealthiest economies have given basically a year hiatus on debt payments and interest payments. So that's to help. But what you're basically hearing from all of these countries and these poor is like, cancel our debt. If you cancel our debt, then we will be able to use these resources to respond to the public health crisis. I, I want to mention that the um, the country right now that has that's worst hit in Latin America uh, is Ecuador. The capital of the region's coronavirus outbreak is Guayaquil, which is a large port city in Ecuador. The theory is that people seem to have come from Spain. Where, which had a large outbreak and brought the disease there quickly. There's a lot of migration between Ecuador and Spain. That's just a theory, though, and no one's sure. But what, what's scary about this example is that the, the health systems in the city have been completely overwhelmed. The death toll is way above what official figures suggested as the mayor of the city just recently suggested around 8,000 people have died there alone from the coronavirus. They're having to build two extra cemeteries to bury all the dead. Uh, it's a complete collapse of of normal functioning and a normal way of life there. And the concern, according to this mayor and other regional leaders, is that this is a leading indicator, not a lagging one, that if social distancing isn't imposed quickly and effectively enough in other places, then the disease will have that same effect in other similar cities. Guayaquil is quite large. It has nearly 3 million people. Uh, and so that that's the kind of population scale that we're talking about. And, you know, one of the places that has been slow to impose the distancing measures, that people are particularly concerned about being the next hub of um, the outbreak in not only South America, but potentially the world, uh, is Brazil. Yeah, Brazil is the country that I really want to talk about because the situation there is just bonkers. Jair Bolsonaro, this right-wing populist president, who took power and has denied that this is even a crisis. You may remember that his basically his entire entourage got sick with coronavirus. Uh, they had come uh, and met with some officials in the Trump administration. And so there was a lot of fear kind of a few weeks ago that maybe, you know, President Trump even or Vice President Mike Pence had gotten it. Uh, and so there's all this kind of worry there. But Bolsonaro, there was a confusion whether he had it or he didn't. He had tested positive, then he tested negative, and there was all this confusion. But looks like he he doesn't have it, we think. You'd think that, like, seeing all these people around him would have made him, like, maybe take this seriously. It's the exact opposite. He has not only just pushed back on governors in his state who are trying to impose lockdowns, he literally attended an anti-lockdown rally, showed up, no mask, and was just coughing into his hand. Uh, and this was just over the past weekend. So... He has, you know, he has made statements like, you know, essentially saying you need to man up and and take it like a man. And, you know, Brazil, like we're tough. We can handle it. That is an insane response to a massive public health crisis. 
Zach, you want to talk about big cities with big populations getting it. Imagine Rio having an outbreak. Rio is one of the biggest cities in the world. There are millions and millions of people. Like, an outbreak there would just be catastrophic. And yet, the president of Brazil is literally continuing, like, to this day, to treat this like it's nothing. And pushing back, he fired uh, his top health official for contradicting him and saying, like, eh, maybe it's actually kind of a big deal we should pay attention to. Um, it, it, so it's just it's just the most insane response I've ever seen in my life. And it's led to, I mean, as of now, half of the confirmed, roughly half of the confirmed coronavirus cases in all of South America are in Brazil. No surprise, right? I mean, Bolsonaro is is sort of the poster child, in a sense, for what leaving a bad response could look like and its consequences. I should just quickly mention, I know we'll, there'll be a Brazil piece in the future on Vox.com, but when I've talked to some people about kind of why Bolsonaro is doing this, the, the, the two themes kind of come up. The first is that he's not quite right. Uh, frankly, um, and, and and that's one thing that keeps coming up. And um, anytime someone mentions science or expertise to him, he's like, "What is this? What is what are these fact things called facts?" That's just one thing he just kind of chides and puts to the side. The other is um, this is a guy who has seems to have, um, and there's a lot of evidence for it, ideas of, of of willing to bring back dictatorship and and, and fascist policies to Brazil, uh, and. Some people believe that he has designs to take advantage of the chaos to consolidate more power in himself. It's why he's firing health officials who are uh, powerful, combating governors, taking bits and pieces of power wherever he can. And it's not working for him. It should be said it for the moment. I mean, he would. Right. He would, that seems like the worst strategy ever if everyone's dying and sick and hates you. Yeah, everyone's dying. Yeah. And then his his ratings, which were somewhat okay, uh, have like just declined. I mean, he's wildly unpopular now with major newspapers calling for his resignation. So uh, if you want to follow the Bolsonaro model, I guess my my recommendation to world leaders, and they should obviously take my advice, is to uh, not follow the Bolsonaro model. It's probably not going to work out for you. So everyone should listen to Alex. Uh, we also encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts because we're we're signing off for the week. And I want to, in closing, thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, for the great job that she always does with our episodes. Thank you so much. And uh, we will talk to you all next week. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.